everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am your host, Sarah Dong. I am a combined adult and pediatric infectious disease fellow currently living in Boston. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and console questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. I'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case, and we'll pause along the way to hear from our guest. Like usual, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. I am excited to welcome and introduce our guest for today's episode, Dr. Jill Weatherhead. Dr. Weatherhead is an assistant professor of pediatrics and medicine in the sections of pediatric tropical medicine, pediatric infectious diseases, and adult infectious diseases at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital. She is board certified in internal medicine, pediatrics, pediatric ID, and adult ID with a subspecialty certificate in tropical medicine and traveler's health. Dr. Weatherhead did her medical training at Michigan State University and her residency and fellowship training at Baylor College of Medicine. She is a physician scientist, and her lab investigates the underlying pathways that cause parasite-induced morbidity and aims to discover interventions that will prevent the development of devastating lifelong disease as a result of parasite infections in children. Dr. Weatherhead is also the Director of Medical Education at the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor and provides patient care at the Tropical Medicine Clinic as part of the Harris County Health System, which services uninsured and underinsured residents in Houston, Texas, and the Pediatric Tropical Medicine Clinic at Texas Children's Hospital. Welcome to the show, Jill. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited that you're here. Um, So as everyone's favorite cultured podcast. Um, We'd love to hear a little piece of culture that brings you joy or happiness, preferably something non-medical. Great. Well, I uh, have a lot of things I like to do outside of medicine, but the biggest thing to encompass who I am as a person is I am an adventurer. So I love to experience new things. I always say I will try everything once, I rarely do anything twice. <laughs> um, so I, I just love to get out and explore, which has been a super challenge during the pandemic, yeah. right, where we're supposed to stay home. So in order to make up for, you know, my wild, crazy travel adventures that I can't do, me and my family have been exploring Texas, which, you know, we're not from Texas originally. So it's been really fun to get out into the outdoors of Texas, which I didn't really have too much experience with. So we do, you know, camping and exploring and hiking. And it's just been a really special time despite the uh, restrictions of the pandemic. So that would, that's my biggest thing. It's everything I'm about adventure and trying new things. I love it. I think we should all be adventurers. Um, All right. So today we're at the Children's Hospital and we have received a consult about a boy who has a fever. Um, So we have a three-year-old and his parents had initially brought him to the pediatrician um, with really what they described as daily fevers. It's been going on for about a month. When they do check his temperature, they're usually getting numbers around anywhere from 101 Fahrenheit to 104 Fahrenheit. Um, so when they find those, they do use ibuprofen or acetaminophen um, with some relief in the fever. And on bad days, they're giving 
medications three times a day. Sometimes he does okay, but it's almost daily at this point. Um, and so in the beginning, he was eating well and otherwise kind of acting himself. But over the past week or so, they really noticed that he is much more tired and he's not really interested in food. And they're really worried that he's not eating now. Um, so along the way, they have seen their pediatrician for a couple visits. They um, actually did go to a local urgent care about two weeks ago. And at all these visits, um, he was diagnosed with a viral illness and um, advised to just continue with supportive care and um, anti the insets that he's been taking. But since he seemed to be really kind of turning the corner and feeling worse, they just decided we're going to bring him into the emergency room because we're really worried. Um, other than the fevers, he's had no other sort of localizing symptoms. So no upper respiratory symptoms, cough, uh, vomiting, diarrhea, no joint pain or changes in um, when he's walking around that they've noticed. Uh, no mouth sores that they have seen, no rashes. And he's otherwise been a healthy kid. He was full term. He really hasn't had any issues. He's on no other medications other than what I mentioned, and he's never been in the hospital. His parents are healthy. His dad has diabetes. But other than that, everyone else at home is doing well. So I thought I'd pause here first and see what you're thinking about ongoing fever for this duration over several weeks, because this comes up a lot in, in peds and the question of, is this uh, back-to-back URIs? Is something else going on? So how do you approach this? Yeah, so these are really difficult cases because you really need a very clear and concise history. Uh, from the family and from the other providers that have seen this patient. So technically, based on the story thus far, he, the patient actually does qualify for the, the definition of fever of unknown origin, right? So this is a patient who's had persistent fevers over uh, 100.9, 101 for over three weeks. And so when you start seeing that consistency and you're not seeing a break in the story where there's resolution and then getting better, you have to start thinking of those uh, common etiologies that cause prolonged fever, that cause fever of unknown origin. And typically when I think about these, I break them up into categories. So that's how my my brain works. I big categories and then narrow it down. So of course, being an infectious disease doctor, infection being a large category, um, autoimmune rheumatologic being a large category, and then um, malignancy, hematologic issues being another uh, category. And of course, you have to think of some other things like, are there any medications, for example, that the patient is on um, or any other exposures? And so once you get your big categories, that's when you, uh, that's when I get into ID mode, right? Where we jump into that social history and really get into the details because it's those little details that can brought, bring you down one way or the other. So a lot of times when we hear these stories, it's so overwhelming because, you know, okay, it could be anything, right? And so having that detailed history uh, will really help you point down one path or the other. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm going to give you a little bit of social history, and then you can let me know if there's any gaps that we can fill in. Um, so he currently lives in the southeast U.S., um, he lives at home with mom, dad, an older brother, and a younger sister. Um, he and his siblings have never traveled, and his parents were born in Cambodia, but they've been in the States for many, many years. 
Um, he's not in daycare. He has a grandparent that comes over and takes care of him and his siblings. Um, he is up to date on immunizations. Um, and I'll stop there and see, are there other sort of targeted questions that you want to ask here? Absolutely. So as I, <laughs> as I mentioned, social history is the favorite part of an infectious disease doctor. Um, I, I know it's not for some other individuals or you don't, yeah. other areas don't like it as much, but we love it, right? Because it really does yeah. provide a, a window into the life of, of your patient. And that gives you hints as to what they're going to be most at risk for to help you narrow down what your differential is. So for this patient specifically, I would want to know really detailed uh, information. So where do they live in the Southeast? What type of house do they live in? Is it urban? Is it rural? Um, what type of um, sanitation measures that they do they have? I'd want to know about animal exposures for sure. What type of animals are around, both domestic, non-domestic? Um, I want to know about their activities. What does he do in his daily, daily, day-to-day life? So he's home with with uh, family members, but are they out playing in the water? Are they out walking in the woods? Um, so lots of, lots of detailed is what information is what I would ask. And I always warn my patients and families beforehand, Hey, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. They're going to seem a little bit silly, but it's just helping me try and narrow down our thinking as to what's going on and help hopefully get us a step closer, uh, to what might be happening. Yeah. Um, and so when you're asking these, the, the main things that came up, so they, they live in a urban area and um, live in a relatively newer house. They do have a cat. They say that he is not in and around the cat litter, but, um, you know, they said we have three kids. We're not 100% sure he's never been around there. Um, And the main thing other than when they're at the house that they do that sort of outside is they do like to go to the local playground and um, he does hang out in some sandboxes there. Um, and they they do notice that he has sometimes, occasionally, uh, maybe eaten some dirt or sand um, from that place. But that's that's about all that um, the family had noted. And so uh, on physical exam, you go to see him. He he looks fatigued, but he is awake and he's interacting with everyone. Um, he doesn't actually have a fever right then because he had ibuprofen when he walked in the door. And the thing that is noticeable on his exam is he does have some hepatosplenomegaly. Otherwise, no rash, no arthritis or joint pain or lymphadenopathy, really nothing else that was appreciated on the exam. No mouth ulcers, nothing else. Yeah. So just a couple other questions. Mentally, how was the exam? Was he mentally intact? Was he lethargic? Was he any signs of meningismus? Um, And lung exam is also an important one. Yeah, uh, lung, his heart and lung exam was normal and lungs were clear. He was sleeping when you go when you first went in, but he wakes up and interacts with everyone. And parents say that he's kind of at his baseline. The only difference is that you're usually he's kind of like running around and jumping. And then when you check for neck stiffness, um, nothing on exam that was worrisome. And no rash, no papules anywhere on the hands. Um, and nothing right. in the eyes. 
and nothing in the eyes. Yeah, and no rash. And then labs-wise, he has a white blood cell count of 10,000. On his differential, he has 15% eosinophils. His hemoglobin is 8.5, and his MCV is 60. And he does have some iron studies that are consistent with iron deficiency. His chemistry and LFTs were normal. And his inflammatory markers are elevated. So ESR was 90, CRP was 70. And then you just have a HIV screen that is negative. That's what we have for labs. And then he has gone for a chest X-ray, which was clear. And then on the abdominal ultrasound, it confirms that he has hepatitis splenomegaly, but there wasn't necessarily any um, specific lesions or kind of new information from that. So I think this is another kind of great pit stop, like trying to tie everything together and how to approach eosinophilia, because usually that sends alarm bells <laughs> all over. <laughs> but I think very similar to fever of from an unclear cause has a pretty wide differential as well. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of things going on with this kiddo um, based on the physical exam and some of the laboratories that you've you told me about. So one is that they have hepatosplenomegaly. So that gives you a whole differential onto itself. And then you tell me he's got eosinophilia. So what I want to make clear with that diagnosis of eosinophilia so that everybody's aware who's listening is don't look at the percentage. Okay. So the percentage may be elevated, but the actual number that you want to look at is the absolute eosinophil count. So we get consults uh, frequently that says, oh, well, the the percentage is, you know, 10%. Well, they have reduced white blood cell count, so they actually don't have an elevated eosinophil count. So always calculate it yourself if it's not done for you on, on the CBC that you get. So for this kid, uh, you made the calc- the calculation was pretty simple. So at about yeah. 1,500 of uh, absolute eosinophil count, which is a true eosinophilia, right? So Mild eosinophilia uh, is about five over 500 to 1,500, moderate 1,500 to 5,000, and then severe is over 5,000. So the patient's kind of on the borderline between a mild and moderate eosinophilia. So that should ring some, some bells for you. So the question is, can we put this all together? You have fever that's been ongoing. You have uh, the hepatosplenomegaly, and you have the eosinophilia. So when I think about eosinophilia, there's really some large groups. And I know we've all learned about this through our our medical training. So the big groups that I think about are allergy and atopy, autoimmune and immunodeficiency, malignancy, um, and and, uh, drug exposure and infections, right? So um, with this kiddo, one thing you really need to make sure is that there were no uh, medications that were inducing the eosinophilia that are going to throw you off of the actual case. So maybe this is just uh, a kid who has something else causing the hepatosplenomegaly and fever, or even just the hepatosplenomegaly, and um, he's on a medication that's causing this type of uh, drug reaction, right? So you can get things like, um, specifically to ibuprofen, actually, you can get drug reactions. Certainly, it's not a dress syndrome, right? That's going to be your drug reaction with systemic eosinophilia and systemic symptoms. It doesn't quite fit that too well, um, but those are the kinds of things you have to look at. And that means lining up when people took the medications and when these symptoms started. So in this case, I would think drug reaction, certainly. Um, I think about allergic and atopy, but it doesn't really sound like the patient had that. 
In terms of autoimmune and immunodeficiency, you can throw in eosinophilic conditions like eosinophilic esophagitis, um, but it really doesn't feel like, given how um, healthy this patient was leading up to this time period, that that fits too well, although you'd have to do some more investigations to, to ensure that's uh, what's happening. Malignancy, of course, is a concern because of that hepatosplenomegaly, so we'd have to do a bit more investigation. And then in terms of infections, what we classically think of are parasites, and we can go into that in a little bit more detail, Um, but other infections like uh, fungi, specifically coccidiotomycosis, as well as HIV, can lead to an eosinophilia. Um, When you think about parasites, so we all think eosinophilia, okay, parasites, it's got to be a parasite. Well, Mm -hmm. it's actually more refined than that. So Remember that eosinophils are tissue-dwelling cells. So in order for there to be an eosinophilia from a parasite, the parasite has to be in tissue. And so that really actually limits the type of parasites that cause eosinophilia. And so it really helps us to understand which parasites would lead to an eosinophilic uh, condition and which ones wouldn't. So from here, with what you have so far, what is your initial request of labs that you want to send? Um, So there's actually a few things I'd like to do. One is take off any medications that the patient doesn't need. So that's always something we don't think of. We think about doing something instead of doing less, right? So taking off some of the medications and seeing if that has any uh, impact on the fevers or on um, the the labs that you have the eosinophilia. Um, the next things would be, you know, to take a deeper look and see if there's any indication of something like a lymphoma or a leukemia that would be contributing to the eosinophilia and um, and the hepatosplenomegaly. Right. So is is there some under underlying uh, hematologic malignancy? that might be driving this. So um, certainly, you know, this is a, eosinophilia is commonly a multidisciplinary approach. So we commonly work with our hematologic uh, colleagues as well as our autoimmune rheumatologic and um, immunologist colleagues. So that would still be high on my list. When I'm thinking about infections, um, in terms of HIV, you have a I'm assuming the fourth generation HIV test that is an antigen and an antibody that is negative. Um, If if the risk factors were there, you could always do a a PCR just or a viral load to see what your levels are at. Um, You know, the fungi, it really depends on their exposures based on where they are. I think that would be really unlikely. Um, When we think about fungi, usually it's the coccidiotomycosis that will cause the eosinophilia. Um, and, and in that case, it's very location specific, right? So it's going to be in the southwest U.S., not in the southeast U.S. Um, but if there's any other indications of, of fungi disease, I'd go down that path, but it doesn't seem to be. For the parasites, um, this also is very, very limited, actually, your workup. So when I, when I hear this story, there's really two parasites that pop up for me that this really could be, and that is strongylodiasis and toxicoriasis. And the reason is, is because these are the two parasites we see in the Southeast United States. They are the two parasites that cause uh, persistent eosinophilia because they are constantly moving through tissue. 
And so those would be the two that are the most common. And so I would um, do a workup for those two. Currently, our only diagnostic capabilities for those two parasitic infections is with serology. So an IgG for Toxicara and an IgG for Strongyloides. So I will simplify the hospitalization so that we can talk a little bit about his final diagnosis. So he he does have an evaluation thinking about uh, malignancy, and that was unremarkable, fortunately. He has some other testing sent, like EBV-CMV, which was consistent with a prior past infection, and then a battery of some other serologies, including toxoplasma, Bartonella, Parvo, and Strongyloides were negative. His stool OMP is negative. And then his Toxicare IgG down the road does come back positive. And so after everything with the hospitalization and finally going home and coming back to clinic, visceral larva migraines is his final diagnosis. So you started talking a little bit about Toxicara, and I would love to hear more so that we can teach our listeners about it. Yeah, so would love to um, talk more about that. (laughs) One thing I would like to say that I hadn't mentioned before, this is a great, this would have been a great case of Bartonella as well, how the patient presented given the cat exposure. And that's why I was asking about the papules on the skin and any eye uh, disease, any CNS disease. Um, but the eosinophilia wouldn't, and the, I'm sorry, in the hemato, um, uh, splenomegaly, but the, the eosinophilia doesn't line up with Bartonella or Brucella, which would be another one. So that, that's where that differentiating if, are these all one syndrome or are these different, um, comes into play. So always think about Bartonella, Brucella when you see those types of symptoms as well. When we're talking about Toxicara, um, it's actually quite common, to be honest with you. So um, if you look at studies of Toxicara in the United States, for example, it's estimated that about 14% of the U.S. population is seropositive for Toxicara. And these are super old studies. So a lot of us who are interested in parasites, specifically bringing attention to parasites existing in the United States, because it's something we don't talk about very frequently. There are parasites here, one of them being Toxicara. Um, so we're all, a lot of us are trying to update that, that seroprevalency, but it's very, very challenging because of the limitations in our diagnostic techniques. So we look at seropositivity because the diagnostic uh, test of choice is the IgG, which we know uh, tells us that you've been exposed at some point. We don't know if it's acute or chronic. And of course, because these organisms are so highly related, there is a lot of uh, cross-reactivity with other parasitic diseases. So um, you really have to know exactly what you're looking for, what the symptoms are to piece the whole story together. That being said, what's interesting about Toxicara is it occurs both in rural populations, but it as well as in urban populations as well. So this is an urban parasite um, based on exposure to cats and dogs. So we call Toxicara a zoonotic infection, meaning it doesn't want to be in humans. It just gets into us by mistake. Um, we, we do nothing to help Toxicara survive. And so they, they prefer to be in cats and dogs because they can complete their life cycle in a cat or dog. So you need to be careful when you're around particularly stray cats and stray dogs because they haven't been dewormed and haven't been treated. Many of them do carry this this parasite. And we become incidental hosts when we accidentally ingest the eggs that have been deposited in soil. 
And so what's interesting about this case, which should have been the big red flag, is that the, the patient had been to a public place. The patient had played in, a, in dirt and in sand that uh, are easily infected with uh, uh, these eggs from cats and dogs that have deposited their feces in these areas, particularly cats love uh, sandboxes. Um, so, so it's something always when you hear sandbox, okay, think, think Toxicara for sure. Um, and then what happens is young children, especially they like to put things in their mouth. That's what they do, right? So they're exploring their environment. They put things in their mouth. So when they do that, they actually ingest the eggs from their environment. And that's when the infection starts. The difference is in children is in, in comparison, well, children and adults, in comparison to dogs and cats, is that the larvae, once they hatch from the eggs and the intestines, and they um, penetrate through the intestinal wall and start traveling through the body, they actually get stuck. So instead of completing its full life cycle, getting back into the intestines, and then um, having the adult worms develop in the intestines and shed out the eggs, like what happens in cats and dogs, they start their life cycle through tissue and they get stuck. And when they get stuck in those tissues, typically in the liver or in the lungs, they create a massive eosinophilic reaction. So remember, those eosinophils are in the tissue. And if you get a parasite stuck in tissue, those eosinophils are going to go crazy. And, and that's where you get that massive increase in eosinophilia that we, we commonly see with Toxicar, even above other uh, parasitic infection. Toxicars specifically, because those organisms get stuck in tissue, classically cause a high eosinophilia. Yeah. And and that kind of explains why you're not really passing from human to human, right? Because the we're not really excreting the eggs. Right. Is that right? You, that's exactly right. So honestly, the, the ONP um, from the stool is not helpful at all in, in this yeah. case, because you're not going, it's not completing its life cycle. So it never gets back to the intestine to shed out eggs, which is what you're looking for on an ovarian parasite exam of the stool. So you will never see Toxicara in the stool, which makes the diagnosis very difficult. Um, yeah. But they get stuck and they can't go on. And again, that's as you mentioned, that's why this is a zoonotic disease. Humans get it from animals, but humans will not pass it on to another human. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned how it, um, they like to travel to the lungs and the liver. And then you asked some questions about uh, the neuro exam. So I thought we could talk a little bit about the clinical forms and what you'll see uh, when patients come in and kind of the spectrum of what you might find. Yeah, so there could be could be no symptoms. Okay, so the severity yeah. of the symptomatology really depends on the inoculum, how much of the eggs you're getting at one time. And that will dictate what types of symptoms people have. So some people may be asymptomatic. They may have a little bit of eosinophilia. So that, that may be all you see. For other people, if they get a large inoculum, um, as these larvae move through the body, they're going to create inflammation in each of those organs. So we classically think of it as um, the eosinophilia plus uh, wheezing is very common. This is part of that visceral larva migraine syndrome where where those that larva go, they're not supposed to be there. The immune system doesn't like it and it causes inflammation. So if it goes to the liver, you're going to get 
uh, hepatomegaly, you're going to get some swelling there or some inflammation there. When it goes to the lungs, you're going to get inflammation in the lungs. And classically, you'll see uh, a patient have wheezing. So a lot of the patients we see will come to us with eosinophilia, a positive toxicar, and I ask, okay, well, a few weeks ago, did you have some wheezing or an asthma exacerbation? And and a lot of times they will say, yeah, a couple of weeks ago we were seen in the ER and got a, a breathing treatment, um, but then it got better. Uh, and then they'll come in and say, oh, I got a CBC done and it showed the eosinophilia. So you can kind of piece that together based on the story. Um, however, it can go to other organs as well. It can go to the heart and cause a myocarditis, and it can go to the brain and cause um, meningoencephalitis. So that's where things really start to get dangerous. And, and we have to really evaluate how sick the patient is to understand if it has gone to those um, vital organs uh, that would need specialized treatment. And that more commonly occurs in younger children. So in the children two to, um, two to five, two to seven-year-old range, more commonly have the visceral larval migraines. The other clinical syndrome is the ocular larval migraines, which uh, leads to endophthalmitis, retinal granulomas, and that more commonly occurs in uh, older children and teenagers. Um, and so, so these are all different manifestations, and it really depends on how sick the child is, uh, what organs are infected that will determine how you proceed with treatment. So when patients have ocular disease, is that generally a totally separate syndrome from having visceral disease? Like does a kid that you see who has uh, pulmonary or hepatic manifestations need an eye exam? Yeah. So I, I do get all my kids eye exams before we start treatment. It's, um, they are, do seem to be age specific. um, And it does seem to be separate syndromes. But the problem is we know that worms in general are very immunogenic. So as they start to die, they will cause massive inflammation. And the places you don't want massive inflammation are in your eyes and in your brain. And that's just general across the parasitology world, right? So whenever we have a CNS parasitic infection, those patients are on steroids. When we have a parasitic uh, eye exam or eye infection. Think uh, neurosister sarcosis, for example. Yeah. These patients need. We need to know if there is disease there before we slam on antiparasitic therapy because it's going to cause uh, significant inflammation and significant damage. So I uh, have all my patients who have Toxicara, um, as well as those other um, parasitic infections like neurosister sarcosis, for example. Uh, get eye exams prior to starting anti-helminthic therapy. Yeah. Um, well, that was a great transition. I thought we would we could end a little bit just on treatment and then kind of suggestions for prevention. So if this happened, kind of how you would counsel the parents. Right. So treatment for these diseases, for this disease, really is dependent on the child. So If they are asymptomatic, you just randomly get a CBC on one of your kids in your primary care office and, you know, the eosinophil is 800 and you get a positive toxicara, you technically don't have to treat that child because the... This is a self-limiting disease, right? So the the larva will get stuck, it will die off, um, and it won't create that life... It won't complete that life cycle. So it is self-limiting. That being said, what makes me nervous about Toxicara is that it's, 
it's moving, right? So some might get stuck, but it's, it's going to keep trying until it can't try anymore. <laughs> and what you don't want is for it to try and get up into the brain or try and get up into the heart or the eyes. So I generally, if it's feasible, try and treat my patients who are positive. The other thing to emphasize again is because our diagnostic tests are not great, you, unless there are the eosinophilia and the uh, sym- uh, systemic symptoms, you don't know if that positive IgG is from two months ago or from 10 years ago, right? Yeah. So you just have to put it in that test, that Toxicara IgG, put it into the context of your patient. Now, for this patient, for example, you would treat with um, anti-helminthic therapy, which is albendazole. So albendazole for Toxicara is given at 400 milligrams twice a day for five days. If they're younger than two years old, um, you you would want to do 200 milligrams um, instead based on the uh, current guidelines. And the question is whether you want to add corticosteroids or not. Certainly, if there's CNS disease, if there's cardiac disease, um, if there's ocular disease, uh, you, you want to have your ophthalmologist involved and potentially do, do surgery and, and corticosteroids. So there's a, that's a little bit more involved. But it's, it's going to be dependent on the severity of the disease, whether you're going to add steroids on or not. But certainly, without question, if there's heart disease, if there's cardiac involvement, if there's uh, brain involvement, then add steroids. If there seems like there's widespread disease, add steroids. Because again, these, these organisms, when they die, they're incredibly immunogenic. Um, the other thing I just want to touch on really quick that's really interesting about Toxicar are the long-term consequences of toxicoriasis. And this is a lot is under development, but those of us who see these patients, those of us who study these diseases, we know that helmets in general cause long-term morbidity. Even after a single infection can have long-term consequences that we don't commonly think of, right? So when you talk about ascaris and trichuris and hookworm, those soil transmitted helmets, we know that contributes to growth restriction, cognitive uh, dysfunction, decreased school attainment, all of those things because of the, the price that they pay on the body. And, and Toxicara is one of those organisms. So there's current um, studies looking at the risk of development of asthma. So is Toxicara actually a risk factor for the development of asthma, particularly when we see this in, in urban settings? Um, there was a meta-analysis that showed a higher prevalence of Toxicar antibodies in patients with asthma compared to controls. So that's something that we're studying specifically is, is that relationship between these organisms and uh, lung dysfunction as children age. The other one is certainly vision loss. Um, so we know that about 70 people in the United States alone are blinded by Toxicara each year. Uh, most of those are children. Um, and, and it can lead to permanent vision loss. So about in a uh, national survey of 68 patients with ocular toxicriasis, about nearly 70% had permanent vision loss. And then the last piece of that long-term consequence is epilepsy. So the question of Toxicara contributing to the development of epilepsy, there have been meta-analyses, uh, suggesting an association between toxicriasis and epilepsy. And these are all, um, things that we need to look at moving forward and why it's critical that we're talking about these diseases happening in the United States and doing something to um, prevent them. And in terms of prevention, what we can do as parents, uh, as as citizens within our (laughs) communities, is uh, keep sandboxes covered. So that's number one. 
and regularly treat your dogs and cats um, for parasitic diseases with, with your antiparasitic medication. So take your dogs and cats into the vet, um, get them treated, and cover sandboxes. If, you know, at a public park that you're not going to yeah. cover a sandbox that's you know community based but really watch your kids when when they are in sandboxes try and get them as best as you can uh, you know i have young children i can't <laughs> control them either try and keep them from putting that uh the sand in their mouths as much as possible yeah um oh and i meant to ask this earlier for albenazole are there any um uh, tissues that you are concerned about penetration or is albendazole pretty good across the board? Is there any difference between other anti-helminthic agents? Yeah. So a lot of the anti-helminthic drugs that we use, the benzmidazoles, for example, albendazole, mebendazole, um, are, are for intraluminal parasites. So in they work great on things like ascaris, for example, 100% cure rate because th- those big worms are in the lumen of the gut it, we're not relying on absorption, and they do a great job. The problem with these is absorption isn't great. Um, albendazole certainly is absorbed better than mebendazole, which is a purely intraluminal agent. So albendazole is the best bet for this organism, but it does have poor penetration into uh, different tissues because of the reduced absorption, um, including into the CNS. But of all of all the anti-helminthic therapies, albendazole does the best at getting into the the brain tissue. So it's what we rely on uh, most heavily. Now, once it has contact with those organisms, it it does a beautiful job at getting rid of them. It just has to get to them. Yeah. Um, this was an amazing overview. Uh, I like to end though by just asking if there's anything you want to emphasize, if there's um, anything else you kind of want to mention, because I we covered a ton of ground today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, one of my missions, being a parasitologist and infection uh, medpeds infectious disease doctor, is that we commonly think of these infections as being a problem in low and middle income countries, right? This isn't our problem. This is only seen, you know, in other areas um, that doesn't have our advanced uh, healthcare system and our advanced housing and the resources that we have. And that's not true. So these are infections of poverty. So if they, there is poor sanitation, if there's poor waste management, and there is a climate that supports these organisms, which um, for Toxicara, for example, it can be anywhere. You know, there's a study from uh, New York City where there is detection of these eggs in parks around New York City. So we have the environment to support these organisms. We have pockets of poverty to support uh, the deposition of these organisms and the exposure to our children. And so it's critical that we're talking about these infections and not brushing it off as it's somebody else's problem. We have the poverty here in the United States and people are at risk. And because of that, and because we know that it leads to long-term morbidity and long-term health consequences, it's critical that we're addressing it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. A special shout out to having a MedPeds ID guest for any MedPeds residents that are considering. Yeah. Hopefully they'll join us. Yeah, um, please, re- <laughs> please reach out to me anytime. If you're interested in MedPeds ID, I can't speak highly enough. So it's great. It's a great profession and so much fun. 
Um, well, thank you again. I really appreciate you being on the show. And I will put some um, links to a lot of these papers that we've talked about in the console notes for the episode. Thanks for listening to another episode of Febrile. As always, I recommend that you check out our website, febrilepodcast.com, for our post-episode console notes, which summarizes key points and provides links to articles. In addition to the website, please connect and follow us on Twitter or Instagram so you don't miss any of the awesome graphics that accompany the podcast. Feel free to reach out, send me topics that you're interested in, awesome ID friends that you think we should feature on future shows, and as always, any ID jokes are appreciated. Lastly, I am always on the lookout for new fellows or trainees who want to join and help create episodes as well. So thanks again for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.